Uh, let's go ahead and pray real quick before we get started. God, I just pray that those words that we've been singing would be resonating within us. These words that, 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 that call back to the great sacrifices that you made for us so that you could welcome us into your family. God, these, these reminders that, that we need you to be at the core of everything that we do, that we look to you, you are our hope. You are our only source of salvation. And God, I pray that we would, we would look with great joy at what it is that you have done for us. The love that you have demonstrated for us as you, as you welcome us into your family. You, you, you craft us into these, these new images, these new, these new people who are this new family, this new body. You're creating for your own glory. And God, I just pray that you would fill us with this deep, passionate sense of love for you and your son, Jesus. that we would be so overwhelmed and overjoyed by our love for you that that would dominate anything else that may be going on in our lives. We would be overwhelmed by your goodness, overwhelmed by your grace, and just so excited to lift our hands, to lift our voices, to just declare your glory and how good you are and how amazing you are. God, be at work in our hearts at this time. Begin stirring up within us a deep, passionate sense of love for your Son, Jesus. Get us excited about His goodness and His grace and the work that He did so that we could be made sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So you can go ahead and start turning back to Song of Solomon. We're going to be in chapter, starting in chapter 6 today. Can you believe that we only have this week and one more of this book? Everybody's like, good, he'll stop making us really uncomfortable. I really, 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 I keep saying this, really, really loved studying this book. Um, just every week as I get to sit down and I get to continue studying and I get to kind of put these things together and it's like, I'm just so amazed at, at the way God has kind of crafted this series and given it to me to kind of teach you guys. And it's been so much fun for me. Um, I mean, when you look at this, and, and this, this isn't just means of an introduction. This is, this is a picture of where we're going today and a picture of where this whole series kind of wraps up. This whole thing is basically a Disney princess movie, right? I mean, think about like all of those iconic Disney princess movies. Where does Snow White start at the beginning when we first meet her? She's like sitting there scrubbing steps because people scrub steps outside of castles. And, and where was Cinderella? Like, you know, trapped up in her little room up in the tower, just looking out there thinking, man, they've got it nice over there, right? Think of these stories that we, that we watch when we grow up and we think, oh man, look at how, look at how unassuming and kind of, kind of small their life is and how humble and how, you know, sad their existence seems to be when we first meet them. And then by the end, it seems that they always meet this, this prince who comes in, who sweeps them off their feet and, and makes them into royalty, right? 
Night and day difference from where they are. It, it's the story of, of a peasant becoming a princess. That, that, is, that is the Disney template that got them started so long ago. I mean, I remember when, and I don't even remember their names now because I'm a guy and I don't care as much. When, which, 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 who was it that got married over in England a couple, several years ago? Uh, the prince, not, not, not Harry, but the other one. Huh? William. And then they got married. And they did the big ceremony thing. And all the people were like, oh my goodness, they're going to live stream the wedding. She gets to become a princess. This is so amazing. Oh, I got to watch it. Right? We care about those stories and they're big deals because she was just a girl that he met. And now she has these like long list of names. Right? And she, and, she has, and she gets to send her kids to this fancy school and they get to wear these really awesome like short shorts that the kids get to wear now, right? But like, we, we so gravitate to those stories. Why do we gravitate to those stories? Because those stories are the story of the gospel. Those stories are the story of Solomon and his bride from Song of Solomon. That's what we've been seeing. A girl who was shy, not very confident in who she was, didn't think she looked like what society said she's supposed to look like, who, found, who caught the eye of this king and he fell in love with her. And for the last six weeks, we've seen how he has just continued to reinforce, I love you just like you are. I want to give you everything. I want you to be, feel, feel safe and protected. I'm going to throw everything I have at you. Look, when I come to marry you, I'm going to bring a whole army just to demonstrate just how safe I want you to feel when you are with me. Right? And we keep seeing how, how he keeps building her back up, building her back up. No, they aren't perfect. We talked about that last week, right? They had their big fight. They had the big moment where they had to get away for a little while, but then we saw how they reconciled because they still loved each other. They still wanted to be together. And now we're going to get one more picture of, of, how, of what this king is going to do to continue to build her up and remind her just how much he loves her. We're going to get one more of these, these passages that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And they're like, how are you going to study this? I know what he's going to read. I know what these verses say. This is going to be awkward. Right? What is the point of this? Why do we need two sections like this in the same book? It's only seven chapters. And I think it's important for us to realize that, that the last time we, we and when we were in chapter 4, we saw Solomon just kind of encouraging her about the ways that he thought she was beautiful and the things that he loved about her on their wedding night, right? This is their wedding night. They're finally alone, and he says all these things to her. We're going to get to chapter 6 and 7 today, and you're going to be like, this is very repetitive. He's saying the same things again. And I think that's on purpose because, because it didn't just stop with their wedding night. He's going to have to build her up and encourage her and tell her how much he loves her. This is maybe a few years later. Who knows how, we don't get big, like, we don't get told this is how long it has been since the last time that we saw these two characters. But I would imagine they've had time to have their fight, get back together on that, all of these things that we've been talking about. So this could be several years into their marriage. And what we're going to see is that our king still deeply loves her and still says all of the same things that he said back on their wedding night. He's still reminding her just how much he loves her and all the things that he loves about her. But what we get to see today in this description is 
just how different she is, just how confident she is with him. She's no longer this, this shy girl who, who is not really comfortable with the way that she looks or anything like that. Uh, we're going to see uh, a very confident and outgoing, strong bride. So if we're in Song of Solomon, chapter 6. I'm going to start over here in verse 4. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this whole section. We're going to go all the way through even part of chapter 7. I'm going to read all of this. I don't have a ton of notes today. I just want to make a lot about how cool Jesus is. So I'm going to read all this, and then we'll talk for a second, um, and we'll go from there. So Song of Solomon, chapter 6, picking up in verse 4. This is the king talking. He says, You are beautiful as Tisra, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn away your eyes from me, for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Not one among them has lost its young. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. The only one of her mother, pure to her who bore her. The young women saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines also, they praised her. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? And then she says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return, that we may look upon you. And then he says, Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master's hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like fawns, the winds of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon which looks toward Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm and lay hold of its fruit. And may your breasts be like the clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. She says, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved and his desire is for me. I'll stop there. Nick, you're still making eye contact. I'm proud of you. You're doing a good job. The first thing that we got to pick up here is that, that Solomon is absolutely entranced by his wife, right? Like at the very beginning he says, you're going to have to look away because I'm just like locked in and I can't, like your eyes just have, they've got me, right? And then he makes this big show of, there, there are so many women out there. There are so many thousands of people out there. I am the king. I could snap my finger and have whoever brought to me. But you are mine. You are the one, the only one. And you have my eyes locked on you. I'm just, I'm just completely 
captured by who you are. I'm giving you my complete and undivided attention. In his mind, no one could possibly compare to her. No matter how many people are out there, she is the one who has his attention. And he wants to make sure that he is telling her just how locked in he is on her. After however many years they've been married, he still only has eyes for her. This is a moment where we could kind of pause and look at this practically. For those of you who are married, like, don't think that because you've gotten married and because you're still kind of doing okay, that you don't still need to say the same things that you said when you were trying to convince your wife that you weren't a complete slacker who didn't like take care of himself and that she should marry you. Like, like, you should still say the nice things that you said then when you were trying to trick her into marrying you. You should still say those things that you feel about her. You should still feel those things that you felt about her. He still feels exactly the same way as he did on the night that they got married. No one could possibly compare to her. He talks about, a lot of these descriptions of her talk about just how confident she is. How she stands tall, how she stands proudly. She's not not shying away, she's not hiding herself anymore. And this again, is a very different person than we start with. He has sacrificed, he's given her all of these things to kind of build her up, to kind of provide her with all of this, you know, security and protection. And now she's something different than she was when she started. Like we were talking about with our Disney princess movies, right? He has made her into something that she was not. In a sense, he has sanctified her. He has changed her. And so what makes, what makes this section different from the other section? What's happening here that is, that is not like what we read a few weeks ago? I think the big key that we get here comes at the end of chapter 6. When, when in verse 13, uh, all the people around are saying, Hey, she sounds really awesome. We'd like to see her. And he says, No, she's mine. Why do you get to look at her? I get to look at her. She's mine. But what he says, he says... Why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? What he's trying to say is, she's dancing right now, and she's dancing for me. She gets to dance for me, and I like her dance. Okay? I don't want to... I'm not going to... I'm really trying not to make this one, like, super dicey and super awkward. You could talk about that in your community group, what all these little pieces of information in here are. And if you have any questions, I would love to help answer. What is he talking about when he says this, that, or the other? because I have all that. But that's not the focus of what I want to talk about. What I want to say is, she's not hiding. She's not shy. She's not, you know, locking herself in a room saying, I don't think I look good to you. Right? What is it it that she's doing? She is confidently and proudly, like, dancing for him. Like, there's not a more vulnerable place than to dance for somebody. Like, I don't dance. Like, I can't dance. I do not dance. And whenever I have ever tried, I realize why I do not dance. Because it is uncomfortable, not just for me, but for anybody else who sees me dance. Maybe I could pull off the Macarena, but even then, it's not very good. But she's confident, right? This is where she is. This is the point that she's making. She's, she's, 
His praise for her, the words that he has continued to instill in her, the things that he keeps saying to her, I love you, you look great, I love all these things about you, Really, you are the only one that I have eyes for. Yes, there are lots of people out there. I could get distracted really easy, but my eyes are only on you. He keeps reinforcing this, and his praise has now freed her to dance. This is a moment of, and I want you to remember this phrase, unhindered abandonment. She is holding nothing back. She has no fear, no shame. We talked about this when we referenced referenced, uh, Garden of Eden in the last like every single week. I keep referencing the Garden of Eden. When we talk about how Adam and his wife were together in the garden and they were both naked and they were unashamed. Like, there is nothing to hide here. We feel really confident in each other's love. This is where she is now. She's free. She is unhindered and she's just letting go of anything that would hold her back. She is so confident when she is with him. Again, this is not the first time she's heard these words. They aren't newlyweds. But she still needs to hear these words of encouragement and she still needs to know that he really feels that way. So he continues to give her those words. And he uses words as he's describing her. The, things, the words he's saying, you're like, you're like wine, you're better than wine. All, all these types of words, he's basically saying, you are intoxicating to me. Does anybody remember the song, if you listen to like 90s pop punk, I'm Addicted to You? Does anybody remember that song, Simple Plan? Like that kept playing in my head whenever I was getting to that line. I was like, I think that was a breakup song though, which means it's probably a really bad song reference for this. But anyways, it was like he's addicted to her. Like he is, he is completely captured by her. Everything about her is intoxicating to him. Which is why we see all these references to, you're better than wine. You're better than this. You're better than that. I just, I love everything about her. He loves her confidence. So men, commit to reinforcing your love for your wives. Leave no doubt that you deeply, passionately love her and fill her with confidence. Ladies, your husband married you. Live confidently and carry yourself that way. Solomon finds her confidence attractive, and that's not unique to him. And I know this can be a struggle, right? This can be a struggle. We've seen, we've seen the different places that she has come from, and it's so easy to try, kind of fall back into the, I don't know that you really feel the way about me that you say you do, or that you used to say you do which is why it's so important that we keep reinforcing this. But the way that the king has changed her, he's taken away her fear, he's taken away this shy, insecure girl that she was, and he's transformed her, which is going to be kind of the big idea for where we go next week. So you have to come back for that because I think it's going to be really powerful. But here's the big point. This is kind of, and I've been, I've been saying this to everybody I've talked to about this sermon this specific sermon within this series. This is, this is the point that I've been wanting to build to for six weeks and six months since I've been studying. I said, remember this phrase, look at her unhindered abandonment. Or if we were going to talk about it, not within the context of her relationship with a king, but rather our, as believers, relationship with our king, Jesus, 
perhaps we would call it liberated worship. What's up there? Liberated worship. So here's what I'm saying. You're probably wondering, is this dancing that she's doing going to lead to some sort of like practical application? What are you going to tell us to do here? Is this just an analogy for something else? Don't Christians think dancing is of the devil? Think about being a fan of something, whatever it is. I'm going to use the perfect example which is being a fan of college football, particularly the number one soon-to-be team in the country. Roll Tide. Amen. What do we do when our team scores a touchdown? What do we do? Right, we put our hands up. No, Tucker, we don't start taking our shirts off. (laughs) But I thank you for your enthusiasm. Our team scores a touchdown... You jump out of your chair, you throw your hands in the air. Did I about hit a light? It's awesome, right? There's a reason that we're called fans, right? Fan being short for fanatic, like crazy person. Like if you're a fan of the SEC, you're probably a little bit of a lunatic when it comes to your given team. You probably make irrational statements and irrational decisions about how amazing your team is, unless your team is Alabama, in which case it's absolutely justified because they are that amazing, and this is not blasphemy. Think of the way we celebrate our favorite team when they do something good on that one day in that one moment of that game. We go after it. It was like, yes! If you've gone to any ETSU games, it's even more meaningful when we score a touchdown because that happens less frequently. Right? Like, I love going to ETSU football games and I love when we win those games that we're really not supposed to win because it's like, we did this! We actually won this game or we're in this game. We have points. That's awesome. Right? And we get super excited. All these are great sports analogies. I can come up with more sports analogies. I'm not going to come up with more sports analogies. What do you do at a wedding reception? When they announce, and introducing, and they come into the wedding reception, Mr. and Mrs. Well, in this case, in our wedding, it was Mr. and Mrs. Tucker Clements because he got our names wrong and he called. She said he was married to, she was married to Tucker. Real true story. It was awesome. Didn't fix it either. I'm still, I still think you're technically married to Tucker. Sorry about that. But what do we do? We celebrate. Everybody, everybody stands up and claps and hoots and hollers and cheers. Sometimes you dance unless you go to a Baptist church. You have a celebration. You're excited. You party. You, you, you can tell by looking at people's faces. This is why everybody has a photographer or a videographer. Because this, like, this is as happy as our faces are going to look. Right? Everybody's excited and happy. And you can see it in their response. They're celebrating this thing that has happened. You're not ashamed to be excited when your team scores a touchdown. You're not ashamed to be excited when somebody gets married and they get announced, hey, this is a new couple, and we're really excited for them. And we stand and we cheer. So what point am I trying to make here? 
Let me give you a really, really clear example. If you want to, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. If you've been here on Sunday nights, we just finished reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, so you have read this. Um, this is one of my favorite stories about David. Um, I'm going to pick up here in verse 12. Uh, so just to give you some context, David's the king. The Ark of the Covenant got taken by the Philistines. They brought it back. It's been living kind of over in this other city. And while it was living over in this other city, it was really blessing those people. Things were going great over in this other city. But David wanted the Ark of the Covenant to come home back to Jerusalem, back to, back to where the center of the Israel, Israelites' culture was. He wanted it to come home. And so, so David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant home, and David is very excited about this. So I'm going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, in verse 12. It says, And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David... And all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel to people, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this and I will be abased in your eyes. By, my, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Just to clarify what an ephod is, it's basically like a loincloth, like underwear. Okay? So get this picture. The king of Israel, th think of somebody who's really dignified that you know. Think of somebody who's in a position of importance, who maybe wears suits and ties all the time, that sort of thing, coming out in just like their swim trunks. And let's just take it one step further. They're probably European, so it's probably a Speedo. This is, it makes you, you're like, I'm uncomfortable with this. This is essentially what David was doing. He was like, I don't care. I got to dance. 
I gotta get, I gotta get all this, this stuff out of the way so it doesn't hold me back so that I can dance as hard as I possibly can because I'm so excited about who God is and the fact that He's blessed us in this way that we get to bring the ark, the, the throne of God basically back into this city. I'm so amazed by who He is and I just love Him. I'm gonna dance as hard as I can. And she's like, that makes me uncomfortable. And other people see you. Why aren't you uncomfortable with the way that you're dancing? And he's like, I don't care. I'm not dancing for them. I'm not worshiping for their amusement. I'm not trying to show them how it is that they're supposed to look. I just love my God, and I want to demonstrate that in any way possible. He is demonstrating a moment of unhindered abandonment. Liberated worship. He is free to worship God as much and as powerfully as he possibly can. And the way he's going to do it is that he's going to dance naked. Exactly like the king's wife in Song of Solomon is. She knows how much he loves her. She's not afraid to show him how much she loves him back in as vulnerable a way as she could. Because she knows how amazing he is, how powerful his love is, and how much he has done to to protect her and show her just how valuable she is to him. This is the same way that David feels about God. He's done so much for me. He He has chosen me. He's made me a prince over Israel. He's done all these amazing and wonderful things for me I'm going to embarrass myself or do what ought to be, culturally speaking, embarrassing because that's the only way that I can express just how much I love my God. This is where he is. He's in this point of complete abandonment, no fear, no shame, even when people who come to him and say, you should probably stop, don't you know you're the king? He says, no, I don't care, because he's the king, and I'm worshiping him. He did not care what anyone else thought. He simply loved God with everything within him. He understood what it was that caused him to rejoice. This is it. This is the point. He understood what the love of God was. And he was so blown away by it that nothing was going to stop him from rejoicing and praising his God. Shulamite, our king's wife, also sees this love. She understands this love. She does not doubt this love She knows she is safe, and so she's going to show him in as vulnerable a way how much she loves him because she understands what it is that he has brought her up out of. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Because I want us to be reminded of what it was that we have been saved from. So that I can encourage you to worship in a similar way. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were dead. It wasn't wasn't that we were shy because culture said maybe we aren't the way we should be. We were dead. We had no hope. There was nothing that we could do to fix ourselves. You can't fix dead. You can't cover up the fact that you're dead because you're dead. We were dead in our sins, chasing after everything that the world chases after, loving everything that, that... that we have tempting us and and trying to pull us away from God, every single thing out there, we we were all in on that. Except that God did something. We were dead and He made us alive by His grace, by His sacrifice of His Son. I was joking that I was going to do like a Francis Chan like forehead wipe. So here you go. Do we get this? Do we feel this? Because because if you look at the way that we worship, if you look at the way that we talk to one another, if you look at the, the way that we, that we express the way we feel when we're, when we're just sitting down having a conversation or having lunch or whatever it may be, Sometimes it's like, we think Jesus is pretty cool. He's not bad. It's fun being around the church. You guys are nice. Oh, this song's good. I'll sing it a little bit. I want us to feel the way that David felt. I want us to feel the way that the wife in Song of Solomon is feeling. Like, I was nothing. I had nothing. David was the smallest and weakest of all of his brothers. He was the one they sent out to go, like, clean up the sheep poop. He's not the strong one. And yet, God chose him above all of his brothers and a king who stood a head taller than everybody else and was massive and looked like what everybody wanted to have in a king. And he said, no, 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 this is the guy. I'm making him royalty. Solomon took his, took his bride and made her royalty. 
And God has taken a whole bunch of dead people with no hope, no ability to do anything. We can't fix it. And he said, I'm going to make you not only alive, but I'm going to make you sons and daughters of God. Yeah, sons and daughters of God. Try this again. I'm not going to start taking my clothes off, though. Don't worry. You were dead in the trespasses of your sin in which you once walked, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. This is exciting. This should make us happy. This should make us joyful. Do we feel it? Do you feel it? Do you get it? Do you know what it feels like to think, I have no hope. Oh, no, I'm a king and queen, a prince, a princess. All those feels that all those movies put you through when they take the girl who was nothing and now she's got all of these things and she gets to ride away on the magical rainbow unicorn that flies off toward the sunset. All of those feels that they want you to feel, oh, that's so amazing. We get that. That's it. That's what we get Jesus and he's going to raise us up and set us with him and shower us with the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Not, not you're going to get saved and all of a sudden you're going to be rich. That's not it. But, but when you get through this, when we get through this time where we're wandering around on earth wondering what is it we're supposed to be doing right now, everything seems broken and hopeless, the promise is we get to be with Jesus at the end and we get showered with all of these things because our God loves us and because He wants to show us how much He loves us and how much He wants to make of us because to Him we are important and valuable and He loves us and wants us to be His bride. And if we are going to be the church, we ought to understand what that means and actually feel it. Not be a bunch of people who come into this building, sing a few songs because they're kind of catchy, but, but feel what Jesus has done for us and love what Jesus has done for us and love what he's, he's called us to so much, love what He's saved us from so much that we are so overwhelmed with joy that our worship is freed to just worship Him in any way possible. If you're, if you're a hand raiser at a football game, why aren't you a hand raiser when you're singing your songs in church with the body of Christ? If you are, if you are a cha-cha slide person at a wedding reception, do they still do the cha-cha slide at the wedding receptions? Tucker, you're a resident youth. Do they still do the cha-cha slide? It depends. Okay, it depends on... Okay. If you're, if, you're a, if you're a dancer at a wedding reception, why aren't you a dancer when we're playing a song that's talking about what Jesus has done and what He's made us into? Do you look like a person who feels overwhelmed and overjoyed by what Jesus has said about you? That He loves you and that He wants to do something great for you. Not because you've earned it, but because He wants to, because He loves you. Does your life scream that you passionately, deeply love Jesus? Do the things that we say to each other reflect, I just love Jesus, 
And because I like you, I want to tell you how much I love Jesus because he's so awesome. Do the things that we say just, just flow out of an overwhelming, impassioned sense of love for our Savior? Do the ways that we respond during worship look like we are a bunch of people who've been saved by the grace of God and pulled us out of death in a place that we could not save ourselves? That's the whole point to me of what I'm trying to say through this whole book. Is that the love of God frees us to worship Him in the only way that makes sense. With complete abandonment in a way that when somebody sees you, they're a little bit uncomfortable because that seems a little bit crazy. You kind of let yourself go a little too much there. That's the way it should look. We should look crazy. Because we are crazy in love with Jesus. So Nick hates me because I, I, I waited for a week when he had to get a guy who's not even really a drummer to drum for him because I said, I need exciting songs. I need happy songs. I need, I, need, I need rejoicing in the truth of the gospel songs so that we can be impassioned and sing in an excited way while we worship because I want our worship at CRC to look like a bunch of lunatics who are so in love with Jesus that we just kind of lose it. I say that, and you know what everybody's face just did? You really want to know? Because I was looking. Everybody's face went... You tried not to. You tried to hide it. I'm uncomfortable by that idea, too. Like, it doesn't feel normal. It feels weird to think, I'm going to dance around and sing and raise my hands and clap and jump up and down, whatever it might be. But... If you're saved, that ought to be the way we feel anyways. That ought to be how we feel anyways as the people of God. So I want you to feel, and Nick's giving me this look like, man, he's going to want me to like jump around while I'm playing guitar. <laughs> You'll figure something out. You can at least get a foot going or something. Right? You guys can go ahead and come on up here. You guys can go ahead and come. I'm going to pray real quick in just a second, but you guys can go ahead and come up here and get set. Y'all are doing what? Nothing but the blood? Yeah? Yeah? This is a good one. Like, like the idea that there was no hope, and now because of what Jesus has done for us, we're changed, we're made new, we're made alive. This is who we are. So I want us to sing, and if you want to move, I want us to move. And if you want to do something crazy and maybe do something a little bit embarrassing and raise a hand or clap or like smile even, you know, like I want us to feel joy. I want us to feel unashamed of the joy that we have in Christ. If we feel ashamed of the joy that we have in Christ, then let me remind you what it was that he said. You were dead and I made you alive. Don't be ashamed of what it is that Jesus has done for you. Don't be ashamed, especially in this group. Because we know. We've been here. We feel it with you. And I want us to not feel shy or ashamed or afraid. I want us to, to, feel, to feel liberated. It's not up there anymore, but that's okay. Liberated to worship Jesus in the only way that makes sense with everything that we have in us. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to let you guys sing. Let's pray. God, thank you for what it is that you have done, that you have saved us, that you have made us alive. Now, God, I pray that you would empower our worship to not be the worship of a bunch of dead people 
who are sitting here without much in it, who aren't invested in feeling the weight of what it is. God, we could have picked any song. We could have picked any song that's tr- that speaks truth about what it is that you've done for us. But you've given us this one. This response to know that your blood has changed us. And no, we don't have a full rock band. We don't need a full rock band. We need you. And God, I just pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to be at work in our hearts, empower our worship, free us from fear and shame. Free us from those feelings that keep us from responding to you in a way that says, I have Jesus and I don't care if anybody sees me love him as much and as passionately as I possibly can. God, fill us with that deep sense of passionate joy for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.